Amen. Well, please do take a seat. All the best murder mysteries have that moment, the big reveal. You know the bit, the the bit when you discover the crucial piece of evidence or that essential fact that, that finally makes sense of it all. And what makes those big reveal moments so good is that as soon as you read it or or see it, you then in your mind go right back to the beginning of the story and you start replaying it in your head. You suddenly realize that things were not quite as they first seemed. All of those little comments, that look that those characters exchanged, the piece of furniture that was slightly out of place, the drawing pin on the floor, all of those little details that seemed so insignificant the first time you saw them. Well, now they become crucial evidence. And what I love about that moment is that actually none of the facts have changed Everything you saw the first time is still there. But now you're looking at it from a new angle. And suddenly it all looks very different. Well, friends, I want to suggest this evening that there's something a little bit like that going on in Jonah chapter 2. Because you see, I don't know what you thought as we read this chapter earlier, but chapter two of this book is almost certainly the most difficult bit of Jonah to get our head round. You see, at first glance, it seems just like one of the many prayers and songs that we find in the Bible that are giving thanks to God for his salvation, for his work of of saving people. But the problem is, that just doesn't really fit with the rest of the book. We saw last week in in chapter 1 that Jonah's clearly not the perfect ancient Israelite prophet. He's disobedient. He runs away from God. And we'll see later in in chapters 3 and 4 that he continues to have a pretty ungodly attitude. He's going to get really angry with God and and be pretty rude to him as he questions what God is doing in the world. And so why then in chapter 2 do we seem to get this interlude where all of a sudden Jonah is responding to God as he should and giving him thanks and praise for saving him? It just doesn't seem to fit. Well, I want to suggest this evening that That's precisely because all is not as it first seems. In fact, I think here in chapter 2, we have a big reveal, a piece of of evidence, a, a new piece of information that should cause us to go back over the whole chapter and read it again with a new perspective. Now, I have to say that that I'm not going to construct a, a complex and exciting plot this evening. I'm not going to make this like a good murder mystery uh, because actually I'm going to come right out with the big reveal right now. Because I would like us, as we go through chapter 2, to see Jonah's words for what they really are. To see that all 
is not as it seems. So I wonder if you've spotted it yet. The big reveal. It's right there in the very last verse of the chapter. Verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. It vomited Jonah onto dry land. You see, I think there are hundreds of ways that Jonah leaving the fish could have been described. The fish could have returned him to dry land or brought him back or, or even spit him out. But, but no, I think the writer of this book deliberately chose the wording that we have here, guided by the Holy Spirit. The writer of this bit of scripture intentionally chose to describe it this way. The fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. If chapter 2 were intended to show us a, a faithful prophet of the Lord, courageously proclaiming God's salvation, well then this is a very strange way to end the scene. If this really was a, a wonderful psalm of thanksgiving and a, and a true celebration of God's salvation, then why does Jonah end the whole episode covered in fish puke? Slimy, stinky bile dripping down him why does God make a point of covering Jonah with vomit well I think it's because we're supposed to see verse 10 as the big reveal it's here that we see all is not quite as it seems in chapter 2 as Jonah stands before us covered in the contents of a fish's stomach it should cause us to go back and take a closer look at what's really going on here. So let's do that. With that big reveal in mind, let's go back to verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You know, if you'd have asked Jonah as he lay inside that fish, if you'd have asked him the question we were considering last week, what is God doing? Well, then I think he'd have been able to give a pretty good answer. God was saving him. God is the saviour God. Because, you see, superficially at least... Jonah understood what God was doing. He recognized that he needed God to save him. It's there in verse 2, and, and it's there again at the end of verse 6. But you, Lord my God, brought me up from the life of the pit. And again at the end of verse 9, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And you see, that's what makes this prayer seem so genuine. There really is some understanding of the truth here. God is the God who saves. Salvation really does come from the Lord. And maybe it's not surprising that Jonah understands that. He's in a, a fairly desperate situation. By any analysis, things are not looking good for Jonah. He's been thrown overboard into the sea far from land. 
And as he describes here, he's, he's sinking into the depths. There is nothing he can do to save himself. He needs God to step in. And God has done just that. Remember, it was the Lord who provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. But also remember that Jonah ends our chapter covered in vomit at the Lord's command. So I think there must be something else going on here. I think we need to take a closer look at Jonah's prayer. And when we do, I think we see pretty quickly that although God is acknowledged in passing as saviour, it's not really God who is the hero of this passage. Can you see what it is that Jonah spends most of this prayer talking about? Can you see who it is that he mentions most? Look again, verse 2, I called to the Lord, I called for help. Verse 4, I said, I will look again. And then read verse 7 again, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Sure, it was God who did the saving, but you get the impression that it's Jonah who deserves the credit because he prayed such a good prayer. He asked in just the right way. He remembered the Lord, not the other way round. You see, this prayer is full of self-righteousness. There's actually no hint of repentance from Jonah. No recognition of his wrongdoing, no mention of the fact that he's forsaken his calling as a prophet, that he's ignored God's direct command to him, that he's run in the opposite direction. In fact, Jonah seems far more keen to highlight what it is that he's done right. How he's prayed at just the right time and in just the right way. And the pinnacle of all this self-righteousness comes in verses 8 and 9. Look at them again. Jonah says this, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah is so keen to point out how much better he is than the filthy pagans. In fact, you wonder whether he's specifically thinking of the sailors in chapter 1. Jonah saw them praying each to his own God when the storm first started. But he, Jonah, well, well, he is so much better than they are. And yet... And yet the massive irony here is that, in fact... He's not. In fact, the opposite is true. Just look again at chapter 1 from verse 13. There we read these words. Instead, the men, that's the sailors, did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. 
Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Do you see? Those pagans who cling to worthless idols and turn away from God's love, well, actually... Jonah never saw it because he was sinking in the sea, but but actually they did the very opposite. They encountered the living God and their response was fearful respect. They turned to the Lord. They sacrificed to him. They made vows to him. Now, friends, we don't know whether those sailors made a a genuine, lasting commitment to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But what we do know is that they actually followed through with their sacrifice and their making of vows. As we read through the rest of the book, as far as we know, Jonah never quite gets round to making the sacrifice that he promises in verse 9. He never did actually do as he vowed he would and proclaim salvation comes from the Lord. You wonder whether Jonah just wants us to know that that's the sort of thing he might say. He is, after all, a good, upright, ancient Israelite. Not like those pagan sailors. I wonder, are you beginning to see that perhaps all is not as it first seems in this prayer of Jonah's? Jonah has some understanding of who God is, of what he's doing. And Jonah can talk a good game. He knows exactly how to sound like he's a theological expert. But take a closer look at what he says. And it reveals that Jonah's understanding is insufficient. He knows in his head that God is saviour, but in his heart, he still resists his salvation. Intellectually, he, he assents to the idea that he needs God. But when it comes down to it, he cannot fully give over control to the Lord. He still wants to be the one who calls the shots. He has recognized Yahweh as Savior, but he's not submitted to him as Lord. And so I guess that leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Just what is God doing? It's all very well having a a big reveal in verse 10 that that changes how we read the whole chapter, but, but to what end? Why is this chapter here? What is God trying to say to his people through these words? Well, remember what we saw last week. God is at work in Jonah's life. He wants Jonah to experience salvation not just to intellectually assent to it. And so I think at least part of what God is doing here is showing Jonah through experience that his understanding of God's salvation is faulty and incomplete. 
It'll become really clear in in chapters 3 and 4 that that God wants Jonah to have a fuller and deeper picture of who he is and what he's doing in this world. And so I think part of the reason for this prayer, at least, is to flag up for Jonah that he's not really grasped what God is about yet. He hasn't really got a, a fully rounded view of God's character. But remember that we also said last week that God is at work in us. And so these words are also here for us. Part of what God is doing through Jonah chapter 2 is alerting us to how subtle our misunderstandings of the gospel can be. To how often we can say all the right things. How we can, can sound like we've got it. And, and yet in our hearts, deep down in our attitude towards God, we get it oh so wrong. I wonder how often in our heart of hearts we begin to think of God like Jonah did. We want him to save us. We, we recognize that we need that. But if he could just do it and, and then step aside so that I could take back control of my life, then that would be wonderful. After all, I'm the one that asked him along. I'm the one that responded to him. Ultimately, I'm the one that's driving this relationship. I wonder if we begin to treat God a a bit like a genie in a bottle. He's there for when we need him, ready at a moment's notice when we call. But ultimately, I'm still in charge. I'm in control. Or maybe it shows more in the way we think about our salvation. If you're a Christian here, I wonder how you would answer the question, why are you a Christian? Why is it that you have responded to God and given your life to him, trusted in Jesus Christ? You know, the longer we've, we've been Christians, the easier I think it is to look back and, and begin to think that it was something about me that saved me. Something in who I am or or in the decisions I've made that has got me to this point. Maybe, Maybe I was just a little more spiritually aware. Maybe I'm I'm just a little bit more intelligent. I can see the arguments where other people don't. I can see the logic of the gospel better than other people. I've just got a clearer view of the world. And so so of course I responded to Jesus. Now, friends, I don't think any of us would ever say that out loud. We'd certainly never write it down in a prayer that someone else might read. But in our hearts, I wonder how often we begin to pull back just a little bit of the credit for our salvation. Sure, God did it, but I was a little bit involved. Friends, that is just crazy thinking. Because actually the Bible is clear. We are utterly helpless, utterly powerless to save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to make God more favorably disposed towards us. Nothing that we can do to bridge the gap between us and our creator. What we need is for him 
to come towards us, for him to stir within us the right response. What we need is for him to bring us back to life. Just have a look with me now at at how Paul describes Christians before they come to faith. Look at these words that will be on screen from Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Do you see what he says about, about the Ephesians before they became Christians? They were dead. Not a bit poorly. Not struggling somewhat. Not fighting hard, but going under. No, they were dead. You know, you may have heard Christians talk about sin, our, our rebellion against God as a sickness, as a, a terrible life-threatening disease that we need to be cured from. And we sit across the desk from the doctor who has, has delivered the diagnosis, but now gives the welcome news that there is a cure. All we have to do is, is take the prescribed medicine. Or maybe you've heard sinful humanity described as, as a drift in an ocean, battling waves and currents, but overhead is a rescue helicopter hovering. A life belt has been thrown down next to us. All we need to do is reach out and grab it. Well, both of those pictures can be helpful. And indeed, elsewhere in in the scriptures, our predicament is described as as a sickness that needs curing or as a a dire situation that we need to be saved from. But friends, the true spiritual reality of sin is far more shocking even than that. Before we know Christ, we are dead. We don't sit in the surgery. We lie on the cold slab in the mortuary. We're not thrashing around on the surface of the ocean. We're lying motionless on the seabed. What we need is is not merely medicine or rescue, but resurrection. In fact, Jonah's description is closer to the mark. Uh, Waves and breakers have swept over me, he says. The waters have engulfed me. The deep surrounds me. Down to the roots of the mountains I have sunk. He was, we were, deep in the realm of the dead before God pulled us out. But friends, that's exactly the point. God pulled us out. We didn't have a good idea. We didn't suddenly have a change of heart. No, God did something. Paul goes on in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. He says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That's the truth I think we need to grasp from Jonah chapter 2. That's the wonderful reality of, of how God's salvation works. He brings us to life. He works in our hearts. 
If we have called out to him, if we have turned to him for salvation, it's only because he first worked in our hearts by his spirit to bring spiritually dead souls back to life. That is wonderfully good news. Salvation does indeed come from the Lord and only from the Lord. Well, maybe you think I've been a little bit hard on Jonah. Maybe he really did mean what he said in the fish. Well, maybe. Maybe in his head. Uh, But by the end of chapter 4, it'll be really clear that he didn't mean it in his heart. And here at the end of chapter 2, staggering to his feet on a beach somewhere on the Mediterranean coast, Covered in vomit, stinking of fish guts. I think it should be evident to us that that Jonah is very much in need of a saviour. But you know, I think it's also clear that the Lord still has work to do in Jonah's heart. To make Jonah fully aware of the true depth of his need. And that's what we'll see as we get into chapters 3 and 4 over the next couple of weeks. For now, though, I'd like us to end with a a time of quiet personal reflection. If you're a Christian here this evening, then uh, let me encourage you to spend a few minutes now before God, examining your own heart. Ask yourself, in what ways are you tempted to view your salvation as something you did rather than something God did? And if you're not yet a Christian, then consider this. Do you recognize that you need saving? And if you do, do you recognize that you cannot do that yourself? You need God to bring you back to life. Let's spend a few moments in quiet now.
For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Almighty God, this evening we pray that you would impress upon our hearts just how desperate our situation was before you reached down into the pit and saved us. Lord, let us never fall into the trap of thinking that we have done something to deserve your love that we have done something to deserve your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Instead, would you lead us to great joy and thanksgiving that it is by grace that we may be saved through faith in Christ Jesus and that even that faith itself is a gift from you. And so, Lord, might we say not only with our lips, but with our lives as well, that salvation comes from the Lord. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.